Hello and welcome to the Activist Podcast, brought to you by Vegan FTA, vegan for the animals. I'm your host, Gareth Skir, and I'll also be joined by my wonderful co-host and wife, Jackie Norman. In this episode, we have the Honourable Emma Hurst, MP for the Animal Justice Party, New South Wales. In the episode, we learn about the importance of legislative change and why it's so crucial to advocate in the political sphere. As an MP for the Animal Justice Party, Emma works tirelessly on behalf of all animals to ensure that they are represented and their plights are heard. You won't want to miss this episode. We hope you learn as much as we did from it and be sure to check out our social media pages at VeganFTA on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube where you can also find the series in video format. Emma, thank you so much for joining us today. We can't wait to talk about your incredible work in legislating change for the animals in Parliament and also create institutional change with that. One question we like to start this interview series with is what brought our guests to being vegan in the first place? And we understand you made the connection between loving one species and eating another quite early on in your journey. Would you mind sharing that experience with our audience and what led you to become vegan? Absolutely. So I was quite a young child. I remember sitting with a hen in my lap and I remember that the hen was purring and I had rescued cats at home and I realised that this hen shows joy in the same way as my cat shows joy. And I also thought to myself that if I couldn't eat my cat, then how could I eat this hen? And I remember actually going home and writing my parents a note saying um, that I didn't want to eat animals anymore. But it was actually many years later that somebody simply handed me a flyer on the street and I went home and I found out what was happening in the egg industry with, you know, baby chicks being macerated at one day old, in the dairy industry with male bobby calves being taken from their mothers and taken to slaughter. And that's when really the lights went on and I realised that this was more than, um, you know, this was more than what I realised what was going on. Um, to animals and and it was really like that that was the moment the pivotal moment where my journey into animal protection really started oh I love that I love your description of the purring hen as well I actually had the the pleasure of a a a hen one of our rescue hens she was purring in as I was carrying her uh just a couple of days ago and um she left me another present down my top after that as well but I It was just such a delightful experience. Hens really do purr, don't they? It was just gorgeous. And, um, you know, those early experiences, they've led you to campaign for animals for over 15 years now and enact so many successful campaigns for the voiceless. Starting out as a campaign director for the organisation Animal Liberation and then moving on to become a media officer for PETA. How is it you initially got involved in working with these types of organisations? So I originally started out by volunteering. So I started out volunteering at Animal Liberation in New South Wales. And, and this is probably going back 20 years ago now um, that I started that volunteer role. And I actually started to try to find other ways that I could get involved. I mean, I was studying at university. Um, I was running and, um, well, I was very heavily involved in running an after-school care centre as well. And so we, we started running an animal club there. Um, and so I was finding other ways and other avenues to keep bringing that message out there. And when Animal Liberation decided that they wanted an administration assistance, and it was literally one and a half days a week, 
um, I applied for it. And so, you know, I really sort of started at that entry level and then worked my way up into those positions. Well, it's, it's great in, to have that insight there. And I'm sure there's many of our audience here who would love to become more involved in, yeah, it's climbing the ladder, isn't it? So um, we understand though a core asset of your campaigning has been your master's degree in psychology. Uh, being able to comprehend the mindset of the abusers and highlight the links that create those types of actions um, allows for effective advocacy against it. Um, was improving your advocacy for animals in mind when you took on that degree? Yeah, look, it was. I was actually studying education. And so w when I said that I had that moment where somebody handed me a flyer on the street and I started reading about what, what, what was happening inside these industries, at that time, I was still studying education. And, you know, when, when the lights went on and I realised that this is what I wanted to do with the rest of my life was to fight to protect animals and to fight to change what was actually happening in these industries, I realised that continuing to study education wasn't actually going to give me um, the background that I needed to be able to do that. And so I decided to switch into psychology. And I also thought that, you know, a human, a, a animal cruelty is human caused and therefore there has to be a human focused solution. Um, so I ended up going into psychology and I ended up doing my master's in health psychology. So health psychology looks at mass behavior change. So how do we convince entire populations to wear seatbelts? How do we convince entire populations to stop smoking? And what I really wanted to focus on was then how do we kind of use those tools and those skills to convince mass change um, away from consuming animal products, from choosing animal-friendly behaviors when you're going out to look for child entertainment. Um, you know, switching from going to a dolphin arium or a circus to going to circus to the filet with, with only human performances. Um, so how do we actually convince entire populations to shift? Um, unfortunately, it's not as simple as um, putting that information out there. I know a lot of people have probably experienced that real frustration from, you know, trying to explain to people what's, what is happening um, to animals. And people often sympathize with what we're trying to say, but their behaviors don't change. And so that's what I was really trying to study with my degree. Oh, that's awesome. And, um, you know, you might have made the switch from, from education, but I think you've certainly managed to combine the two really, really well, because, you know, that, that's, you've only got to look at your social media and everything that you do to, to see how much you are educating everybody out there about what is going on. And um, in the brilliant healthification podcast that you did with uh, with Kate Galley, who we love, um, you spoke briefly about three areas of advocacy, individual behavior change, corporate change, and lastly, your chosen field, political and legislative change. Um, here at Vegan FTA, we recognize the importance of having activists in all of those fields. And sadly, we see the lack of them in, you know, when it comes to the political field. That is, however, not for the lack of trying. Um, we know many activists who wish to throw their hat into the ring. Um, I can think of several off the top of my head, including me, and become involved at the parliamentary level. Um, I'm sure that many of our viewers would love to know if you've got any advice for those who wish to become involved in this field and becoming part of that legislation process for the animals. Absolutely. And, and I mean, it's interesting, you know, you talked as well about, you know, that individual and corporate and political change. And you're right, we, we need change in all of those areas. Um, I mean, at its very core, the most important is that individual change, because the political change and the corporate change doesn't exist unless we have 
that people power to be able to drive corporate and political change. But if we only focus on individual change, it's going to be much slower. Where we can get corporations and political change, um, we see quite rapid changes. So that's why we need people working in all three areas. Um, as far as politics, look, I mean, I spent most of the beginning of my career in animal advocacy in individual and corporate change, and that still helps. So I think that it's okay to dive in wherever you want to in, into animal fields and, and working towards animal protection. Um, I think as far as working specifically in the political space, um, I don't have a law degree. You don't need a law degree, um, but I do have someone on my team that does have a law degree. Um, and so that helps me particularly fill the gaps when we're talking about laws that aren't related to animal protection. But because I'd spent so many years working in the animal advocacy space leading up to, to my running for politics, I had a pretty solid understanding of the Protection of Cruelty to Animals Act, which is the primary act here in New South Wales around animal cruelty. So I already had a pretty good idea about animal law. So you don't need a law degree, but read up about animal law and understand what needs to change, but also start lobbying, start to meet with politicians. Um, one thing I was really shocked about when I first got into politics was that every time that there was a major issue, there was people knocking on the doors and lobbying about what they wanted you to do and support or not support. But when an animal issue comes up, there's absolute silence. There's nobody coming and knocking on the doors and advocating on behalf of animals. And I think it's because a lot of us are too nervous to actually go into politics and start lobbying um, a lot of these MPs, but we have to be there. We have to be a voice for the animals. Otherwise, there's only the voice of the lobby groups, the farmers' federations, um, who, who are still going in every time there's an animal issue and, and lobbying against what we want. Um, so get out there and, and, and start advocating for animals with your local politician. Speak with local councillors as well. Um, a lot of work that we've been doing recently is on that local council level. Ask to meet with your councillor, um, particularly around election times. They'll be very interested in hearing some of the issues that you want to talk about. And there's a lot of animal issues that fall into that local council level. Um, animals in pounds. Um, we've had we've done a whole lot of bans. We did a ban on fur um, with with about six councils. Um, we met with Blue Mountains Council recently. They did a ban on the use of 1080 poison, which is a, a really hideous poison, um, which is also used in New Zealand, um, that um, just causes the most horrific death to any animal unfortunate enough to ingest it. Um, and so there's a lot of things that you can take either way. Um, but meet with your, local, with your local politician, write to them as well, send them emails, call their office, um, do petitions and, and send those petitions into Parliament as well. Um, if you're doing a parliamentary specific petition, there's usually a way that specifically that it has to be set out. Um, so go onto the website and see how that petition has to be set out. It can't be just um, your regular change.org petitions. It has to be worded in a very specific way. Um, if you're looking at actually becoming a politician or wanting to um, work within politics. Um, if you're wanting to work behind the scenes, probably focus degrees on law or communication so that you can do um, social media, media releases, all that sort of side of things. If you are looking actually at becoming a politician, then you need to get a little bit of a broad range of skills. You need to be comfortable to talk to the media. 
um, you need to be able to comfortable to speak at protests, to speak at events, um, but also to understand social media and campaigning at the same time. And probably the one skill that I think a lot of people don't realise as part of it is that you need to be willing to actually sit and talk with a lot of people that don't think alike. Um, and I think that's one thing that most people miss and they think that they could lock themselves in the room and just put up the legislation. But unless you're actually, you know, there's two of us, there's two members of parliament in New South Wales with the Animal Justice Party and there's one in Victoria. Now we have to have the majority of votes to get anything passed, which means I have to go and speak with Labor, I have to speak with the Greens. Um, and if I can get them on side, then I need to get one more vote. And that means either getting the Christian Democrats, One Nation or the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party. So I have to be willing to go and knock on doors and speak with anyone. That's some fantastic advice. Yeah, and, um, great insight. Yeah, it's wonderful. And um, I can also um, say with looking at the laws and stuff as part of the research for this series, I've had to go and look. And they're quite eye-opening in understanding the animal ag laws um, and they can be really effective for your advocacy. And also knowing more about the petitions because we are seeing all the time change.org petitions for some great causes. But it is really good to know that there's a spe specific way to uh, yeah. put it forward so that it's going to have the most impact that it can. I see that all the time, actually. You know, I, I you know, rush to sign these petitions and then they sort of say, oh, do you want to go one step further? Do you want to, you know, write to your MP? And, and I'm one of these people that would like, oh, well, I'd like to, but, you know, what are the guarantees they're going to read it? Like, is my voice really going to make a difference? So it's, it's great to know from, from you personally that that is, you know, something that we need to be doing that's worthwhile doing. Thank you. And write to your local politician as well. Don't just write to the ministers. So the ministers often get people writing to them, but it's really important um, to write to your local member because that's the person that you vote in or out at the next election. So they are much more likely to take your email seriously, um, whereas the minister's office will often get tonnes of emails from both sides. So write to your local representative. Right, I know what I'm doing after this interview. Anyway, I'm writing letters, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> but um, with parliamentary houses across the world still being largely male-dominated, your primary field of advocacy, animal rights, um, is also up against a majorly male-dominated sector. Um, sadly, it's something that we see far too often is women being dismissed when speaking out about animal welfare issues because, well, to quote, you know, often men say, you know, they're too sensitive or emotional. Have you found gender disparity to be another issue to overcome in this field in Parliament? Look, um, the Parliament in New South Wales is definitely um, a, a boys' club, um, um, and it's so outdated. I was trying to explain to somebody I was um, buying a new jacket for work, and I was explaining to the shop assistant that at my um, in, where I work, the temperature is set in the house to 16 degrees or, or somewhere nearby around that. It is freezing. It is absolutely freezing cold. And what we've been told is that it's been set to a temperature that is comfortable for a male in a wool suit and tie. So that's how bad it is where we work. And, and this shop assistant couldn't believe it. I didn't tell her I worked in Parliament. I was just telling her at my workplace that this is the temperature. And she was horrified that there was any workplace in the world that had that as a, as a bar as a bar that they'd set um and look i mean look it's certainly there um but it's an interesting one and i guess 
Um, I mean, I guess it's interesting with the Animal Justice Party because there's one male and one female MP. Um, and I suppose I've been quite careful about how I approach and talk about issues. And I think one of the most important things is that we don't ever exaggerate what happens to animals and, and we don't need to exaggerate. You know, the simple truth of exactly what's happening to them is enough on its own. So, but it's also about not presenting it as cold, hard facts because that's easy for people to listen to, but they don't resonate with it. So it's about finding that middle ground. It's about bringing the emotion into it without becoming emotional and turning it into something um, you know, much bigger. So it's about, yeah, finding that middle ground. And, and it's quite difficult to do, um, but there's only one person really in our house that has ever kind of um, made fun of me and made out like I was some kind of emotional crazed woman. And that's a member of the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party. So I'm not that surprised. Um, but he was kind of also making fun of this whole idea about having compassion towards animals at all. Um, so, uh, but nobody else really has. So I think I've managed to find that middle ground between remembering that human beings are emotional beings and that we respond and the way we change our behaviours is through emotions rather than facts, um, but also making it quite factual and um, saying it exactly how it is um, without exaggerating anything. Mm, that's great. It's um, it's very true, actually, thinking of some of the activists that we've, we've you know, um, come across ourselves as well, particularly the female ones, you know, do you get accused of being over-emotional, postnatal, um, you know, all of these crazy things and, um, and you know, being up against the animal ag sector the way the way you are as well in um, in Parliament. That's another huge sector. So um, I think you do amazingly well and, and certainly must be hugely effective in, in everything that you've achieved already. And you've mentioned that you actually... There are two of you, um, two of the MPs in, in the um, Animal Justice Party in New South Wales. So I don't know how this affects my next question now, but I was going to say something I think many viewer, viewers will be able to relate with is being, you know, one of the only vegans in their workplace. And I was going to ask you, what's it like being the only vegan in yours? But what's it like being one of the only vegans, the one of two in your workplace? <laughs> We're not even one of two. Um, I mean, well, first of all, you know, we've got our own offices and so we've got two staff members. And so, you know, like within your own kind of office space, everything's vegan and everyone's vegan. So you've kind of got your own little um, separate area, I suppose. And so you're kind of somewhat separated from the rest of them. But really oddly, um, we do actually have a third member of parliament who is not a vegan. He's 100% plant-based, but... He's a member of the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party, which is really strange. Um, he's in the lower house, um, but he follows a, a fully plant-based diet for health reasons. Um, and it's always interesting when there's a, a parliamentary event on and both houses are invited, we always get sat next to each other because I think the catering wants to make it easy for themselves because they'll put the two vegans together. Um, and he always pulls out all the photos and wants to show me what he had for lunch yesterday and dinner the day before. Um, so, I mean, look, I think it's growing. I think that the fact that somebody from a political party called the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party is also following this lifestyle um, is really telling. And of course, you know, one thing that's really great about being a vegan in parliament is every time that there is a catered event, everybody always looks over at what I'm eating and they go, oh, <laughs> 
like when you're getting something separate, it's always better. Um, I was just traveling um, for a few hearings and the committee staff brought all my food and they brought me different food. And of course, everybody was trying to nick off with my food that, that they'd brought in because it was, you know, healthier and easier. And they were just given the same cakes every day. So um, I often get a lot of comments that people said, oh, I should have ordered the vegan meal. So I think, you know, even if you're not saying anything, if you're just sitting there and having your food, you're advocating just, just by being there. Oh, that's fantastic. It's great to also have an ally in a strange place there as well, uh, yeah. to a degree. As previously mentioned, your psychology training has been a fantastic asset in your chosen field of ad advocacy. With animal rights issues often put on the back burner by other political parties, money injustices continue to occur unchecked until other factors are introduced, such as humanitarian concerns. Many studies have shown the links between domestic violence and animal abuse. Would you mind sharing a little about this with our audience about how this violence perpetuates other violence? Absolutely. So, look, violence is violence. And we know that people who are violent to animals, that they're likely to be involved in child abuse, domestic and family violence, gun violence. There's even research to show that in towns where there's slaughterhouses, slaughterhouses there are higher crime rates. Um, that's how strong this link is. Um, and it's something that we need to realise that, you know, we've got such strong campaigns against child abuse and domestic and family violence, but we need to realise that the only way we can overcome those is by recognising and overcoming all violence. If we ignore one subset of violence, and that's the violence towards animals, or we turn a blind eye to it, we're never really going to overcome other forms of violence because we are still allowing violence in the society. Um, and because they're linked, because people who are violent um, are violent in multiple different ways, we need to tackle this in a different way. Mm. Yeah, it's so true, isn't it? Um, we were, when we first went vegan, we were down at the very bottom of the South Island in a rural, very rural area. And um, yeah, the, totally makes sense what you're saying about you know we were surrounded by things like slaughterhouses and there were very high crime rates um suicide rates all kinds of of things that you know were not so strong in other areas but um yeah interesting indeed one of the things we love so much about your approach um particularly with advocacy is how you're not afraid to speak out on a variety of subjects and champion those causes that are dear to you in following your social media you know we get a, a true ex expression of who you are i mean i love you know, there's some great politicians over here that I really admire, but you don't really get that glimpse into who they truly are as a person. Um, you know, the way you've opened up to the public and your fans about your health issues, um, even being a, a survivor of domestic um, violence recently shows a layer of transparency and, and openness that we feel is just so lacking in the political sphere. By connecting to your own traumas and letting people in, do you find that an effective way to advocate against these issues? Yeah, and... Look, it's interesting. When I sort of came out of that domestic violence relationship, I really sort of shut down emotionally. I stopped feeling anything. And I think that that was a real protective mechanism to not wanting to feel vulnerability. And I realised that overall that was going to affect my ability to advocate for animals. If I'm shut down and I'm not feeling any kind of emotion, how can I 
advocate for animals. Um, and it's, it's really interesting, you know, when you sit down and you write and you try to imagine what it's like for one of these animals, you know, you have to sit down and you actually have to feel something for it to actually come through in what you're writing. Um, and sometimes I've actually sat down and written speeches or even written social, social media posts, which take you into quite a dark place for a little while as well when you're trying to um, imagine what it's like. I remember writing some speeches about battery caged eggs and, and the hens and the life that they live. And I actually sort of tried to imagine not being able to move for 18 months, not even step forward or step out or, or actually sort of just stretch your arms out or anything. Um, and, you know, then, then the way you write it, I mean, the way I wrote it was quite simple. You know, she cannot take a step forward or backwards. She cannot ruffle or preen or she cannot attend to a nest. You know, she cannot ever even turn around. Um, and so you think about what she's experiencing and you can go into quite a dark place, but you need to be somewhat vulnerable to be able to do that. And so I really sort of start to pull that back in to also help with my advocacy. But then on the flip side of that, I think that, and this is something that I think that the Animal Justice Party does well, is that I think that people are really sick of the stereotypical politicians. I think we're over this whole um, cold person that will stand there and, and tell us how it should be done. Um, and I think that it's created a lot of people and a lot of um, communities just completely disengaging from politics. Um, we're sort of sick of um, just just the, the coldness within politics, um, the nastiness within politics. And so I think just being a real human being and saying things how they are kind of cuts through all that rubbish and actually says, well, actually politicians can be people too. Um, and I mean, that's the best way to re rebuild trust into the whole political process is by being honest, um, admitting when you make a mistake even, um, and yeah, being a real person. There's something that we just love, yeah, your approach and just how warm and friendly you are with it all. And um, to follow on from that topic though, do you find bringing humanitarian issues to the fore in conjunction with animal issues to be an effective way of presenting things in Parliament? Does the House respond better when there's a human element uh, to empathise with rather than trying to empathise with another species? Look, they do, but I also have a really strong feeling that we also need to have animal issues also stand on their own. So I do talk about, you know, last year we did a whole lot of work around domestic violence and animal abuse and the link between domestic violence and animal abuse, and we got a whole suite of legislative changes. And we're doing a whole lot of work now as well around child protection. Um, so making sure animal abusers can't pass working with children's checks. And I'm also now trying to work with ministers to create new offences um, and penalties around new offences if an act of animal cruelty is conducted in front of a child because we know the damage that it would cause that child. Um, so, but that also in and of itself elevates the seriousness of animal cruelty to people who are coming from a very specious perspective. Um, but at the same time, we also need to bring in issues like puppy farming and uh, mulesing of sheep and the use of 1080 poison and to highlight these things without that human element to really raise the profile of these problems and explain that as well. One thing that I'm constantly telling everybody in the house, um, particularly 
um, people who push against what I'm putting forward is that we, we don't have to choose between humans and animals, um, animals and non-human animals. Um, we have to actually work to protect both. Um, we absolutely have to protect both, um, but it's not a choice. By working to protect animals, it doesn't mean that we're going to then neglect human rights issues. Um, we have to deal with both, and so that's why we do a bit of both. That's awesome. I love how your uh, campaigns are proving catching as well over here. Um, you know, I've been following your, your puppy mill campaign for a while now, and I see now it's it's trickling into New Zealand. You know, I, I had a, an email the other day. I think it was from Safe. I'm not too sure, but they're also starting to campaign against puppy mills in New Zealand and, and getting people to come forward and expose them so that they can get to the bottom of this. And, um, you know, it, it was great, you know, actually knowing that you can do things about these atrocities happening you know with pop i, I actually bought um a, a puppy years ago um from someone who i now know was the the someone who ran a puppy mill and at the time i was like this isn't right and even my children that were with me were like god that was horrible it felt more of a a rescue than an adoption you know but at the time you kind of think well this is how things are as we do with so many things when it comes to animal exploitations you know you don't realize that you can do something about them but in um in tackling the the greater animal agriculture industry um for another example you know it can be harder to create points of empathy in a species's culture especially when there are so few industry insiders speaking out publicly in regard to helping to sway legislative efforts towards ending animal agriculture are there any topics, topics even, not topics, are there any topics our activists should be informing themselves on in order to help dispel the myth of animal agriculture being that backbone of their country, which we hear all too often over here? Look, I think that probably one of the strongest arguments that we can work towards is this whole idea around transformation. Um, and... Uh, you know, recently we did a, a dairy inquiry here in New South Wales, which Jackie was wonderful and gave evidence at. And one of the aspects I was really trying to get in, and because it's really hard, as you say, you know, you've got a really big industry with lots of money and very powerful lobby groups that give huge amounts of money to the two main political parties here in Australia. And that makes it very hard to talk about some of the issues within the industry and to fight to change them. Um, I mean, we, we are still highlighting these issues, but there is so much opposition to actually changing these laws. But when you start talking about actually transform, trans, transformation and transforming industries out of animal agriculture, um, you know, it really puts up that argument, well, if you really want to support farmers, why force them to remain in an industry? Um, you know, at that dairy inquiry, we heard about dairy farmers um, with, with, with depression, um, suicidal ideation even. Um, we heard about the cruelty. We heard about the environmental impacts. We heard about how the environmental impacts are affecting them on a day-to-day -day basis. We also heard about how consumers are, are moving away from this product that um, and the dairy industry um, and some of their lobby groups were saying, well, we've got to change the labelling of plant-based milks and we've got to start putting free milk back in schools as a way to increase the, the amount of consumption again. Um, whereas our solution is, well, why don't we actually change the industry and help farmers transition to plant-based farming um, 
because that's where the consumers are already moving and that's where this shift is going. And here in Australia, we've got a really good opportunity because we're the third fastest growing vegan market in the world. And the first and second fastest growing vegan markets in the world are our neighbours, China and the United Arab Emirates. And it's the same with New Zealand as well. Um, so we can actually, and, and most of the plant-based proteins that we consume in New Zealand and Australia are imported from overseas. So it makes no sense for Australia, which is a dry continent, which has um, massive amounts of drought, um, to continue to farm animals and to continue to force people um, to, to farm these animals in these awful conditions. And a lot of these people are wanting to move away. Instead of subsidizing these industries to prop them up, to allow them to keep going and finding ways to subsidize them either with handouts from the government, which is taxpayers' money, of course, or by you know putting milk back into schools, we can use that money instead to actually help um, repurpose the land where farmers are on and reskill them to actually change into these plant-based proteins. So I think that there is huge promise in that. Um, I think it's solution focused um, and, and I can't really fault it. And I think it's an area that we all need to start really thinking about so we can start talking about it when we're talking to members of the public that are interested and concerned about the way animals are treated. Stop the podcast. We'd like to take a moment to give a shout out to one of our partners, the Javinity Coalition. The Javinity Research Program believes in the power of intersectional behavioral research, evidence-based lifestyle change, and conscious communications campaigns to support the holistic health of our planet, human and non-human animals. Head on over to theversafoundation.org to learn more. Now back to the podcast. Absolutely. I was just listening to a podcast this morning with um, investor Jim Mellon um, with Elizabeth Alfano, and he was saying, you know, I've got advice for anyone in the dairy industry, you know, get out now because this is, a, you know, it's going to be gone. It's going to be gone. So the sooner we, uh, yeah, we get people to wake up to that, the better. Absolutely. Um, another a point to add on to that as well is, is what you sort of touched on as well is, the idea, you know, they are humans as well, a lot of these farmers, and they're, they're entrapped within it uh, for the most part because we know from D uh, Jackie's past, you know, in the dairy industry that so many people are just so ingrained. They're entrapped by the bank because they've had this huge mortgage in order to get their dairy farm operational and keep it operational, and then having the government backing that up. You know, if they want to move out, they don't necessarily have the, the means to. So unless we have that institutional change towards something new and incentivizing that um, we're going to struggle but as mm -hmm. activists if we can understand the, who the farmers are themselves it gives us that ally in the in the other uh, party really you know it gives us that insight in how to help them you know and this is the thing where we need to help each other in creating this vegan world and so yeah there's, there's so much that we need to learn as activists as well in order to get them out of there mm, definitely but um, at the time of recording this, in New South Wales, um, there's been a law enacted, which is fantastic, uh, creating the lifetime ban of serious animal abusers, uh, keeping them from owning or working with animals. And this is such a huge win. But got to say, you know, like um, when I was listening to the radio who was saying about it, you know, he was just as shocked as I was that, you know, that there was nothing there already doing this, you know, people who could go out and do hideous things to animals could you know go out the next day and carry on it was no problem 
In previous interviews, you have spoken on how the current systems to stop animal abuse are built to fail. This latest one is helping to change that, but would you mind elaborating on how the systems have been failing the animals so badly previously? Yeah, so, I mean, this most recent win, it's an interesting one. I mean, sometimes some of this is just a massive oversight because nobody's looking into animal protection laws. And I think that, so bestiality, there was no provision for the courts to ban somebody who's been charged for bestiality from having further animals in their care. I mean, that was just a gap within the legislation. And because nobody before the Animal Justice Party were elected were even looking at animal legislation, animal protection, I actually think that that was just a genuine oversight. Um, so we've switched that and we've made serious animal cruelty, which is the top tier animal cruelty and bestiality, automatic lifetime bans, um, rather than even leaving it to the court. So. Um, it, it's and, and there are lots of other areas which we've sort of keep discovering more and more and more that, um, you know, like with the working with children's checks, the fact that somebody can be charged with severe animal cruelty and still pass a working with children's check and go and work with children. And this all came out of a, a particular case of animal cruelty that came to our attention. And this man was running a petting zoo and, and going to... Um, daycare centres with children and, and bringing them animals to, to see. So that started to help us pull out some of these oversights within the legislation. But when we talk about the legislation being set up to fail, um, the, the legislation set up to fail specifically farmed animals and introduced animals. Um, and quite often companion animals and wild animals are unintended victims of that set up to fail. So when, what I mean when I say it's been set up to fail, we have animal cruelty legislation, but there, first of all, there are exemptions. There are exemptions for farmed animals and there are exemptions to cruelty laws for introduced animals as well. So um, what would be illegal to do to a dog, say performing um, some kind of mutilation procedure where you hacked off a large chunk of flesh from a dog, people would be outraged, you would be rightfully prosecuted. Um, whereas that's still happening to many, many sheep in Australia through, through the mulesing procedure. And of course, there are other forms of mutilations that happen to animals on farms as well. So there's actually carved out exemptions and the same exemptions exist for introduced animals. And that's how it's legal to use hideous poisons like 1080 poison and pindone poison, for example. Um, then it gets worse than that. So apart from the fact that there are exemptions, then we've got private charities being charged with investigating and prosecuting any acts against the law. So every piece of criminal legislation in this country is fully funded by the government except animal protection laws. In New South Wales, the enforcement of animal protection laws has 6% of that enforcement cost being funded, which means that 94% of the cost for actually overseeing these laws and prosecuting people who have broken those laws is fundraised from the public. So it would be like asking the police to set up a fun run to raise money to investigate and prosecute people driving under the influence. 
Um, I mean, that sounds absolutely insane and, and it is insane, um, but that is what we're doing with animal protection laws. And what that means is for these charities is that they have to be very, very careful about what cases they take to court because it's very expensive to go to court and they'll have to fundraise every time they go to court. So you've got a charity with very little money that's been charged with upholding these laws and there's no oversight either onto those charities as well. So their prosecution powers are signed off by the government and they can not get those prosecution powers at any point in time. They can stop signing them off to be able to give them those prosecution powers. Um, and then they have to go out and raise the money to actually uphold the law. But the person that also signs off on these laws to allow them to prosecute is the Minister for Agriculture, who is the minister that is also set up to protect primary industries. And of course, animal protection is often the complete opposite of making the most money that we possibly can out of these animal industries. So, I mean, I mean, I hate the term putting the fox in charge of the hen house, but that's exactly what's, be, what's happening here. Um, so you've got this minister who is in charge of the animal welfare portfolio on the state and federal levels that is essentially also a mouthpiece for the animal agribusiness industry. Um, so it's very hard to get improvements in the legislation. Um, and then what is the weak laws that are already in existence are almost impossible to enforce and uphold. Um, and so that's why I say that, you know, the whole thing is, is set up to fail. It's just, it's a flabbergast and just understanding that and seeing how that's all happening. Like, it's just, wow. And yeah, it's such a conflict of interest as well with having the um, Minister of Agriculture at the head of it too. It's just... Oh, it sounds all too familiar though, isn't it? Mm. I mean, it's it's the same for it's us the same here. Setup, it's right? the same oh, setup, right? It's the same setup. It's the same setup overseas in various other places as well. And, and you know, walking into Parliament, it's... It's almost like, it, that, but that's the norm. That that's how it's all it's always been. But it's sort of like, but you know, you think about any other issue. Can you imagine, you know, the coal industry being in charge of environmental laws? I mean, it, it's just bizarre um, that that people have allowed this to continue for so long. So I just wouldn't have it, would you? It makes me think as well with having like the SPCA being the ones in charge of policing and stuff like that. Like we expect it. We spoke with Damien Manda and his Akashinga out there in um, in Africa. And you expect maybe on the poaching ranges, you know, you have a self-funded team going out there to try and stop these crimes. But you don't expect that in at home, you know, in, in places like New Zealand, Australia. It's, <laughs> yeah. It drives you mad. It's mind blowing. I have to listen to you talking. I was I was wondering how how easy is it in comparison, you know, when you when you're trying to pass animal protection laws for companion animals as opposed to farmed animals or, or you know, wild animals or would, would be considered pest animals, you know, as, as you know, 1080 is a huge problem here. And I, you know, I can just imagine you being in parliament and trying to pass a law for a dog or a cat and all the MPs sitting there thinking, oh, yes, thinking of their little fluffy, you know, whatever they have at home uh, to come home to and sit on their laps, you know, how, how easy is it to get laws for companion animals passed to create positive change for them? as opposed to animals that people can't readily visualise or, or 
you know appreciate or recognize them for having feelings emotions and, and all of that kind of thing you know is it and because i guess you know with the exception of things like puppy mills you know they people don't stand to make a huge amount of money from from companion animals so um yeah how, how much of a difference is there i would imagine it'd be huge but oh it, it's it's very different um you know, when you bring up farmed animal issues, it, it's almost like there's a tension of like, how dare you even talk about this? How dare you even bring this up in the house? I actually did, oh gosh, I can't remember the number of notices of motions now, but last year I did a notice of motion on every single issue of animal agribusiness um, from soil runoff to environmental damage to each species and what they're put through the hand masturbation of turkeys in the turkey industry um, battery cages in the egg industry maceration of day-old chicks in the egg industry like every single issue we put up a notice of motion and I went down the house and I and I read it out and um, you know some of them people sat there in silence um, and then some of them, because I was getting up every single day and reading out two or three of these every single day, um, sometimes, you know, they would try to make jokes or they would try to yell over the top of me to try to silence me. So it was a really sort of aggressive response, not from everybody. Quite a few people also came up to me and said, I had no idea about half of that. And, um, you know, I've, I've been really thinking about some of these issues now. I had no idea this was going on. Um, so some people, you know, from a personal point of view, were rethinking it. Um, but I think the difficult thing is I can get almost all of the politicians to rethink on a personal level, but on a political level, it's a very different game indeed because the other problem we have is with our election system is where we have electorates and some electorates are very much dominated by the animal agribusiness industry. And so everybody's fighting over those electorates and everybody needs that extra seat to be able to get um, government, which means that they can, you know, like they won't put up certain issues, they won't fight certain issues because they don't want to lose a seat or they think that they can potentially win that seat in the future. Um, and that makes it another difficult aspect of trying to get political parties as a whole to actually shift. And I, I was actually speaking at an event last weekend and someone was saying, well, what do we do about this then? Because, you know, we can't just elect people into parliament to deal with cat and dog issues, even though there's so much to do there, um, you know, there's this much bigger issue. And um, what I explained was, you know, we just need to get bigger and bigger and stronger so that our voice can no longer be ignored. At the moment, it's a balancing game. It's about, okay, we can ignore the Animal Justice Party, we can ignore the vegans because we need these seats. But the bigger we get, the more we end up on councils, federal parliament, state parliament, and we keep gaining seats, the harder it is for them to continue to ignore that. Um, so it's really at that stage of building a bigger voice and a bigger awareness as well. And so some of that is and that's what was great about the tougher penalties bill is it applied to all animals. So the tougher increases in animal cruelty um, applied to every species. Um, and we are also then focusing on, and the same with the domestic violence laws. Um, so you can get apprehended domestic violence orders for animals. Um, and again, that's all animals. Um, so if if someone was being abused on a place where there was chickens and, and um, cows for example uh, you could put a cow onto an apprehended domestic violence order um, so there are a few aspects where we're able to include all animals 
Um, and but even the work we're doing around companion animals, um, particularly the the puppy the puppy mills, um, because there aren't businesses making a lot of money, um, we're finding the same pushback. Um, not to the same level where we're able to maybe at least get one of the major parties on side um, for for part of it. So there's that, um, which is probably more than what we can do for farmed animals at the moment, but. Um, it does make it really hard and it's the same for introduced animals as well, um, getting people to, to sit down and talk about it. And, and that even extends to the greens as well here, um, where it's hard to get them to actually stop and consider that these are sentient animals that were essentially brought here against their will over 200 years ago, um, usually by European settlers. And, you know, we have a responsibility where... Um, if those animals are in large numbers and they're causing problems, that we need to find the most humane and non-lethal solution. Yeah, exactly. I hope this is uh, watching. This is is lighting a bit of a spark in uh, you know, killing a wee flame in all of our would be uh, vegan uh, politicians out there. And um, you know, we we hear all the time. You know, if everyone knew this they would all be vegan, you know, when it applies to, to so many things. And while being confronted with the whole cold hard truth can be a surefire way to change some people's minds, you know, it doesn't work on everyone. And a topic that frequently arises in this series is the cognitive dissonance that comes with people knowing and yet still acting in discordance with their morals. Through your professional training as a psychologist, which we've already mentioned has, has been so beneficial, do you have any tips for our activists when tackling this issue? Yeah, look, I think that the biggest issue that we all have as activists is that most of us changed because we found out and that's all it took. <laughs> and, and so I think that the mistake a lot of us make, and, and I certainly made it when I was very new to this, is that I thought, well, once I found out, I changed. So therefore, when you find out, you'll change. And it would be lovely if it was that simple. I think that we'd already have a vegan world or very close to a vegan world by now if it was that straightforward. And certainly education is part of it. Certainly you can't get anywhere unless there's that educational level first. People have to know the issues and understand what's going on. Um, but then this nasty thing called cognitive dissonance steps in. And that's a way. So what happens is it's when our own behaviours uh, don't match our ethics so when we care about animals we don't want to see them harmed but we're still financially supporting an industry which hurts animals and harms animals and causes an enormous amount of animal cruelty so what happens is that that behavior has to be excused and so you see cognitive dissonance come out in a variety of different annoying ways um, my doctor told me i tried and i felt sick um, it will be too hard for me. Um, I only eat free range. Um, so all of these excuses, that's actually the cognitive dissonance in action. That's cognitive dissonance saying, oh, yes, but. Um, so I find the strongest way to get through that. I mean, veganism has to be cheap. It has to be easy. It has to be normal. Um, and that's where a lot of campaign work is going into, you know, when you've got that vegan menu it's it, like at every restaurant, especially at fast food restaurants, you're ticking so many of those boxes. You've made it cheap, you've made it accessible, you've made it normal. Um, but I find when I'm having those one-on-one -on -one conversations is I bring the conversation back about myself because if you're talking to somebody that really helps, um, if, if you're coming at that person, 
it really ignites that cognitive dissonance. Um, you know, you imagine that if somebody handed you a plastic bag with some, something in it and you went, oh, all right, and you, and you came home with it. And I met you on the street and I said, Jackie, you know single-use plastic bags and how bad they are. And I start telling you off, your automatic reaction is to go, oh, well, you know, like somebody just handed it to me when I was picking up my friend's jumper and I just didn't want to put up that argument. And, and so you're, you're automatically debating with me um, rather than actually listening to the argument I'm talking about, which is the single-use plastic bags. And so you're trying to fix that incongruence with your behaviour and your beliefs rather than listening to the topic. Whereas if I come and I talk about an animal issue from my own point of view, especially if you talk about when you change. So if I say, I had no idea, you know, I was a vegetarian for years and years and years, and I had no idea what was happening in the dairy and the egg industry. Like it is so well hidden from consumers. And for years I had free range eggs thinking I was doing the right thing. And then I saw this footage on the internet of what they do to the male chicks, which is half the chicks born into the industry. And they're put into a giant blender while they're still alive. And that stops the cognitive dissonance because I'm only talking about myself and my own experience. Um, or if I saw Jackie with the plastic bag and I say, oh, the other day my friend tried to give me that a plastic bag to, to take something home with. And you know what I said? I, I just said like, oh, you know what? That's going to clutter my place. I'll just take the, the thing out and you keep the bag. And so it's sort of like I've given an answer and then you go, oh, yeah, I should have done that. And probably next time you will <laughs> because you've thought about it um, rather than becoming defensive. Thank you. That's some uh, that's some great advice. Mm -hmm. It's always lovely to hear new ways to sort of get around things and yeah, open people up. Because I know for my sake, uh, when Jackie went vegan at first, I said, you know, I love you, I support you, but I no way in hell am I doing it. And then five days later, the gears started turning for me, and then I ended up because it was phrased to me in a way that you know worked with me you know i didn't have the defenses up at that stage you know got my brain ticking so i didn't even try to preach at him because i <laughs> i just i never thought he would either <laughs> uh, i'm a stubborn git when i want to be <laughs> with um legislative change happened across the states of australia barbaric industries such as the puppy mills which is currently a key focus of your advocacy um they've been migrating in order to stay out of the the catchment of some of these laws so as an animal rights issue we can easily ally with the general public on, can you give our audience some more insight into what the puppy mills are and what is what it is they are doing so we might individually help you more with campaigning against them? Yeah, so, I mean, puppy factories or puppy mills or puppy farms are essentially the intensive factory farming of dogs. So in New South Wales, where we're campaigning against this industry, you could have... Well, there's absolutely no limit. I often say you could have 600 dogs, but in reality, you could have 20,000 dogs. There's no legal cap on the number of female breeding dogs any one facility can have. Um, they often spend their lives in tiny pens um, and they're just breeding machines. So they're forced to pump out litter after litter after litter for the pet trade industry. And so there's no caps as well on the number of litters. There's also no caps um, or regulations around the number of staff that are required. So you could have a 600 um, dog farm um, with one staff member, with one person running the whole show. So it's, and that's where you start to see all these health problems um, with 
and it, it's just it's just awful um you know it's the dogs the female dogs that you see that are coming out of these industries and sometimes also the male dogs as well um they have huge behavioral issues they have so many health problems and the puppies are often sick too you know there's not a week that goes by where someone doesn't ring our office saying that they'd accidentally born bought a, a puppy from a puppy farm um, because a lot of these industries are very hidden it's very much underground um, my advice to everyone is that if if it's a puppy at a pet shop if it's a puppy online just expect the worst um, you know, the only way we can actually safely bring a companion animal into our home is by is through adoptions and rescue centres, um, and and they're inundated with with animals, with companion animals. And so, if you do have a loving home to bring one of these animals in, you know, go to one of these rescue groups and go to go, or if you um, can handle it, you know, go go to one of these pounds as well and the shelters. Um, so, I mean, we've been campaigning as Victoria um, put up legislation which effectively bans puppy farming. We're hearing of puppy farmers just moving across the border into New South Wales where our weak laws do absolutely nothing to protect these animals. And we're hearing from councils who are being inundated with development applications for puppy farms. Um, they are getting people campaigning against them to reject the development applications. There are no laws, state laws, that allow them to legitimately reject those development applications because puppy farming is legal. Um, so, you know, it's a real hideous mess. Um, and so we've been campaigning here um, to Adam Marshall and Shelley Hancock, the two ministers that could potentially outlaw this in New South Wales. Um, and we've we've been largely ignored. Uh, we are working with the Greens and the Labor Party. And look, hopefully we, we're writing our legislation. We're at the very last stages. It's taken us a long time. It took us much longer to write the legislation than we were hoping it would um, because we're really writing a brand new piece of legislation from scratch um, because, you know, the entire companion animal breeding business in New South Wales is unregulated. Um, there's nobody inspecting these places. Um, there's no oversight regime. Um, it's an absolute mess. And, and I think that the general public, even though we can talk about puppy farms and people are horrified by puppy farms, I don't think they realise how massive this industry is and how they dominate that whole pet trade industry. And people go online and they look on websites and they see lovely photos or they... Um, the pet shop says, no, no, we don't sell from puppy farms um, without recognising, of course, that um, any of those sort of registered breeders with main organisations don't supply to pet shops. So if they're not selling from puppy farms, then where are they getting these dogs? Um, so it's, you know, it's a real minefield. It's really hard for people out there to actually find out whether the animal has come from a puppy farm. Um, the chances are very very highly that they probably are coming from a puppy farm so we hope to be bringing in our second read for that debate this week um and 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 then it will be a process of, of trying to debate the bill so that will probably happen over the next few months so hopefully um by the sort of third quarter of this year we would have brought that legislation here in, in new south wales um but even if we pass it in the upper house then it goes to the lower house um, so we'll see what happens there in New South Wales. But obviously this is something that's quite urgent in New South Wales. We do have a petition um, 
um, which is on my website, Emma Hurst MP. Um, so we encourage people to share and sign that petition. Um, we had delivered it to the minister when it reached uh, 30,000 signatures, um, but it would be good to get another lot of signatures and actually sort of give him an updated version of that petition as well. Um, because at the moment they're trying to ignore the issue and hoping that it will just go away. Absolutely. Thank you for, uh, yeah, that's, that's so eye opening and definitely go, go and sign Emma's petition. It's, um, you know, as a, a sort of people who hear all the time about, um, you know, farmed animals being farmed, you know, <laughs> the, uh, the animal agriculture industry, you, you just don't, realize that these things are happening and yet we should because i mean we, we live near the beach and every single day i say to gareth i'll go for a walk on the beach i come back and i say oh i saw this beautiful dog it was um you know i didn't recognize the breed i said to the owner what what you know what what breed is it and you will always get pomsky you know spoodle cavoodle labradoodle and it's like so you pay the fortune for a specifically bred mongrel then for you know a, a hybrid whatever you want to call it i don't know what what is the acceptable word for it but and like you say there are animals just crying out in shelters and there is so much money in it it's just mind-boggling and yet i'd never realized um until you said just then just what a true definition of a, a puppy farm a puppy mill is so um yeah thank you for such important work go and sign Emma's petition so you are such an absolute inspiration to us and you're such a powerful voice for the animals. We just love everything that you're doing and we're so glad that although you're not here in New Zealand for our sakes, like you're over there in Oz doing wonderful things there for the animals. And do you have any future campaigns or goals you'd like to share with our followers? And also, is there anywhere else our, our folks can go and keep up to date with you? Absolutely. So check out my website, Emma Hurst MP. Um, it's been a little while since I've updated it. Uh, one of my staff members is on my back about that. <laughs> it's been lower on the priority list. Um, but go onto my Facebook as well. I am on Instagram and Twitter as well, but um, my Facebook tends to be uh, my most interactive um, social media channel where most people are. Um, we will always post all our updates there on Facebook and everything that we're doing each week. So puppy farms is our next big piece of legislation. Um, we're working on the working with children's checks and those changes to legislation that recognize um, abusing an animal in front of a child as, as hopefully a new law as well. But one thing that I'm really excited about, um, which we're working on in the background and will hopefully um, launch later this year, is we're working on a world first speciesism bill. So recognizing the issue around speciesism. Um, so the legislation that we're writing recognizes basic rights of animals. And if somebody breaches one of those rights, when you wouldn't breach it for a human, then that could be taken to court. Um, so this really kind of brings every animal industry under the spotlight. So um, it's interesting, I did speak to um, well, we've been communicating quite a bit with Peter Singer when we first started writing this. Um, and then I did speak to a, a journalist as well when we were going through different aspects of the legislation. And he was asking about um, killing introduced animals. And we, so, so the benchmark is, would you consider it legal to do to a human being? So would you consider it legal to kill off human beings with the use of tenacity poison? Um, and so if, if that's not legal, then it's a form of speciesism and you've breached one of the basic rights of animals. 
Um, so we're still working on it. Like it's, it's quite difficult to come up with a brand new piece of legislation that hasn't happened anywhere in the world. Um, but we want to put it up because we know that it's one of those pieces of legislation that has to be put up at one point to really start to challenge and push people forward. Um, you know, it's, nothing happens until somebody does it and people can say, oh, it will never happen and it will never pass, but everything has to start somewhere. Someone has to put it up first. Um, and then I think eventually at some point we will get to that place. Um, but I think that we need to push that bar by putting it up now. Thank you for listening to this interview. We hope you have found it informative and entertaining. To learn more about Emma's work, check out emmahurstmp.com. Once again, be sure to follow us on our social media platforms for future episodes. And if you enjoy the content, please leave a review on your chosen podcast platform. This has been Vegan FTA, Vegan for the Animals. <laughs>